0: chapter one, as we are starting our new sermon series. And while you're turning there, I wanna talk to you even a little bit more about history, I love history. In fact, I'm a huge history nerd. Uh, It was my favorite class in school. I like to read historical biographies and watch documentaries and stuff like that. Maybe some of you are into that too, or maybe some of you are like, that's weird. Maybe you slept through it in school. But regardless, history is significant. Over 40% of the Old Testament is dedicated to telling the history of the people of God. And we got to hear some really encouraging stories from Pastor David about our history together as a church family, as a campus of Coastal. And I wanted to share just a little bit more from my vantage point. You know, Coastal Church served the Yorktown area faithfully for well over a decade as a single site church. Uh, But our leadership began to have a burden to reach the Gloucester community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we had at that time, probably about 100 people, myself included, and many of you in this room who would every week faithfully drive over the Coleman Bridge praying there wouldn't be an opening, uh, going to worship the Lord in Coastal in Yorktown. And we had a burden to plant a campus in Gloucester. So we rented the old Automax building across from Gloucester Toyota, and we started worshiping there in February of 2018. I remember one of my favorite memories there was early, one of our early Sundays, we had a couple come to me after one of the services and ask if they could rent out our garage to start doing auto repairs. And they had no clue we were a church, no clue. And I had to be like, uh, look around, yeah, there's chairs, you know, we're singing, all that stuff. Anyway, and so we used to joke around, that was our kids area, the old garage. We had missed out on a really good business opportunity if we could have taught these kids how to do oil changes. But man, we had such a great time there turning a car dealership into a church. By God's grace and blessing uh, from COVID until right before we move, our average attendance nearly tripled, uh, necessitating three services and ultimately this facility that you and I are sitting in today. So a huge purpose of our grand opening today is to celebrate the kindness and the faithfulness of God in leading us here today. This is our history, very briefly, as a campus of Coastal. But I hope you know that the people of God in scripture had a very fascinating history as well. How about we do the Old Testament in about 60 seconds? You ready? Buckle up. Genesis chapter 12, God calls a guy named Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of your family. And through your family, I'm gonna bless the whole world. This family does become a great nation, the nation of Israel, and God makes a covenant with Israel. He said, if you obey me, I'm gonna bless your socks off and I'm gonna bless you in this land that I promised you. But if you disobey, you're going to receive these curses. You're going to be exiled from the land. And I hope you know that the story of the Old Testament is really dark. It's one failure after another. So eventually, God gives them a king, King David, and he establishes this monarchy where God's people were to be ruled by his chosen king, That lasted for a whole generation until they messed that up too. And the kingdom gets divided into the Northern and the Southern kingdom. The Northern kingdom gets conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Then following suit 150 years later, the Southern kingdom gets conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC. They get dragged off into exile. Jerusalem gets destroyed. The temple gets destroyed. The walls get destroyed. The gates get burned down. And the city that God had chosen is in ashes. And it felt like all hope was lost. But through the prophet Jeremiah, God made a promise that 70 years later, his people would come home and he would restore them. And That's exactly what happened. Because 70 years later, the Persians then conquer the Babylonians. Israel's always getting caught up in the middle of the international conflicts. And King Cyrus of Persia says, y'all can go home. And so you can read about that in the book of Ezra. When they go home, the temple gets rebuilt so that worship can resume. But the problem is that the city itself is still in ruins. The walls had not been rebuilt. And this is where we are picking up the story of the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the leader that God appointed to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. And we're gonna spend the next two months, both in corporate worship and in small groups that I know you guys have already signed up for and are already in. We're gonna spend the next two months studying the book of Nehemiah together as a church family. And here's what I want us to get from this sermon series. First of all, I want us to consider the vision that God gave Nehemiah and how he used him to accomplish his purposes. However, if all we do in this series is learn a really cool Bible story, I think we've missed the point. Yes, I want us to learn this story, but I also want us to see how it applies to our lives today because as followers of Christ, God has given us a mission. It's a different mission to be sure. We're not called to go and to rebuild walls, We are called to partner with God in his mission to build the kingdom. And we do that by preaching the gospel. We do that by making disciples, by developing authentic followers of Jesus Christ. So we're going to learn what it looks like in this series to have a heart for the kingdom of God, to learn about this mission that God has given us and how he calls us to pursue it together. But in this first chapter, we're gonna learn where it all starts. It starts with prayer because here's the main point. We should pray before pursuing the mission that God has entrusted to us. In this chapter, we're going to see Nehemiah's prayer and then we're gonna see the action that it leads to. So let's read this story together and then we're gonna jump in. This is Nehemiah chapter one, starting in verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, "O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. Remember the word that you have commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing on the preaching of your word this morning. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive what your spirit has to teach through the word today. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours, that you would draw us closer to yourself, that you would give us a zeal for your kingdom to see your name exalted in all the earth. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now to set this up we need to understand that this story begins with bad news begins with bad news coming from Jerusalem he gets the report of Jerusalem's broken walls all right we get the bad news from Jerusalem and the first part of that is Jerusalem's broken walls here's how the story begins in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. So he's in Susa and he bumps into his brother Hanani. Really quick, this is an important side note. As small groups are getting ready to start, your small group leader might ask you to read even this week. And here's the deal. I have no clue how to pronounce these names. I make it up and I say it confidently. That's what you do especially when you're reading the Old Testament, man. There's these names in there. You don't know what you're doing. If you say it confidently, people will assume you know what you're talking about. That's a good life principle in general, but that's just a tip. All right, so he bumps into his brother Hanani. How's it going in Jerusalem? And he said, really bad. The people are in great trouble and shame. The walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. This is why this is so significant. In the ancient world, city walls and gates were your only defense against your enemies. Without that, you were a sitting duck. Jerusalem is totally vulnerable. So the city that God had chosen to be worshiped, for the temple to be, for his name to dwell, as this passage says, is in ruins. And Nehemiah's response is what we see next. We see his broken heart. We see Nehemiah's broken heart. Look at verse four, describes his reaction to this news. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was broken. He was grieving over the state of his people. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he wept over the ruins. He was grieved. And now, Without knowing anything about Nehemiah, you might read this and think, wow, what a wimp. What a big old softy. He's just gonna sit there and cry as soon as he gets some bad news. You would be wrong. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy, Nehemiah. One of my favorite characters in the Bible, actually. Uh, Nehemiah was a man's man. He was a man's man. Let me give you a few examples of that. Later in the book, when people were violating the Sabbath... This is how he responds in Nehemiah 13, 21. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And a few verses later, he found that some of the men married women from other nations that didn't worship the God of Israel. And this is how he very calmly and patiently deals with it. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Some of you guys are like, sign me up for that ministry, Pastor Nate, ministry of pain. But listen, this was a man's man, not afraid of anything. But when he hears this news, he's crying like a baby. He's weeping, he's mourning. Why is that? Because Nehemiah had a heart for the kingdom of God. His heart was broken for what breaks the heart of God. When he saw the state of God's people, it broke him. So in this context, why was he grieving? It was over the sin of the people that led to the judgment of God being poured out. But this principle about what grieves us should be applied more broadly. Do you realize that as followers of Christ, scripture in multiple places calls us to grieve? In fact, Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Consider a few things scripture teaches us to weep over. First of all, our sin, James 4, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. You probably ain't got a coffee cup with that verse on it. But here's the deal. Scripture calls us to weep over our sin, not just because we got caught, not just because of the consequences in our lives, but because sin is offensive to our Father who is in heaven, because by our sin, we have grieved the heart of a holy God. Scripture calls us not just to weep over sin, but over suffering. We're to weep over the suffering of others. Romans twelve fifteen. rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And how about this one? We're to weep over the lost, over those who do not know Jesus Christ. This is the way that the apostle Paul did that in Romans 9, verses two and three. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the kinsmen according to the flesh. It broke Paul's heart for his fellow Israelites that had rejected Christ. So let me ask you this question this morning. If you'd be willing enough to be vulnerable with yourself and be honest with yourself, what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? Let me tell you, I believe that what causes you to weep demonstrates what you value. And let me be very transparent. Even as I was praying this morning, getting ready to come here, there was a prayer that I kept repeating from the Hillsong song, Hosanna. It says, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. I was so convicted as I prayed that because far too often, my heart is broken over trivial and superficial things. And far too often, I am calloused and apathetic toward the things that break God's heart. We should pray, Lord, would you break my heart for what breaks yours and let that lead me to action. Let me ask us this morning, when was the last time we wept over our sin, over the sins of our communities, our churches and our nation? When was the last time we wept because of the suffering of those around us? When was the last time we were genuinely grieved over someone that does not know Christ? may we all be brokenhearted over what breaks God's heart so that like Nehemiah, we will pray and we will act for God's glory. Because Nehemiah's broken heart is what leads him to prayer. That's what we're gonna see next in this story, Nehemiah's prayer. Now, I think that this prayer that we're about to study is one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful and scripture saturated prayers that we see in all of the Bible. And just as a fun note, Comparing the month of Chislev with the month of Nisan. See, there I go again. The month of Chislev with the month of Nisan, not the car, the month uh, in in chapter two. Those are about four months apart, okay? That's why I bring that up. This was not just a one-time quick prayer that he prayed. Four months go by. I think that this prayer is a sample of what he had been continually praying for four months. And we're gonna talk more about that next week but I wanna break down this prayer into four sections and see what each has to teach us about prayer. The first is adoring God's character. Genuine prayer is about adoring God's character. Verse five, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Just listen to how Nehemiah describes God in this first verse. He said, he is the Lord God of heaven. Lord in your Bible should be all caps. It is the covenant name of God, the name that he revealed to Moses. He is the great I am, he is the God of heaven. It's a phrase used multiple times in Ezra and Nehemiah, describing God's transcendent majesty, his sovereignty, that he is the one who rules over all. He said, he is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, the God who always keeps his word, who always keeps his promises. There is so much theology wrapped up in just the way that Nehemiah addresses God. And this is why this is significant. And far too often when we pray, we skip this step. We're quick to give God the grocery list. Hey God, how's it going? Uh, today I need this, I need this, I need this. Please don't rain, give me a good day at work. See you in heaven. Right, we, we come and we treat God more like our butler in heaven. Rather than our Father in heaven, we don't take the time to worship Him and to adore Him for His character. Nehemiah understood that prayer always begins with a recognition of who God is. And I wanna make a statement that I think is significant this morning your prayer life will not rise higher than your theology. Let's say that again. Your prayer life will not rise higher than your theology. And here's what I mean by that. If the conception of God that you have in your mind is small and weak, your prayers will likewise be small and weak. You won't pray the kind of big, dangerous, kingdom-minded prayers that we see Nehemiah praying here. This is the God of heaven who always keeps his promises. And when we get that, we will begin to pray with boldness and confidence that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So let me encourage you, when you pray, make sure you begin by acknowledging God, remembering who he is, praising him for his character, no matter what's going on. Because listen, Nehemiah is praying this as he's weeping, as he's fasting. And he starts by adoring God for who he is. But The next aspect of prayer that we see here is confessing our sin. It's confessing our sin. Look at verses six and seven. Nehemiah prays, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. This confession, it's both personal and it's corporate. It's personal. He said, even I and my father's house have sinned. He's including himself in this but he's confessing the sins of the people of Israel, their unfaithfulness to the covenant that got them booted out of the land in the first place and in exile. Prayer should always include confession of sin. Jesus himself teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts for this reason. Confessing our sin is the humble acknowledgement that we have broken God's law, that we deserve nothing but God's wrath, and we are totally dependent upon his mercy. But here's the deal. Even when we do that, we do so with the confidence that God is gracious to forgive. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess with the confidence that our God loves us, that he forgives us, and that he cleans us up no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been. But next we see that prayer includes remembering God's promises. Remembering God's promises. Verses eight through 10 say, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Let me show you what Nehemiah is doing here. He's actually quoting the Bible. He's quoting Deuteronomy to God, and this is in essence how he's praying. God, you said you'd do this, so do it. We understand that because our kids do that, right? They'll quote us to us, say, you said you would do this, now do it. I saw this Facebook post recently. My kid, quote, no, I don't remember where I took off my shoes five minutes ago. My same kid, quote, You told me six Wednesdays ago at 2.46 p.m. that we might get ice cream after school. It's probably more selective memory than anything else. I see some of you parents like, yep, that sounds about right. They're calling on us to act on the basis of what we said we would do. You said we would do this, so do it. That's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He said, God, you said you would do this, so do it. And what exactly were the promises that Nehemiah was appealing to? I actually want to go back to the book of Deuteronomy and show you. This is what he's quoting Nehemiah said, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Likewise, Deuteronomy 28 64, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. That's the bad news. But this is what God promised they would do if they returned. Deuteronomy chapter 30, listen to these beautiful verses. And when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is incredible. Verse four, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there, the Lord, your God will gather you. And from there, he will take you. And the Lord, your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Do you hear what God is saying? Even if you can make it to the uttermost parts of heaven, you can't get too far away from me. He's saying, if you will return to me, you can never get too far away. Man, maybe there's somebody here today who's been running for a long time and you feel like you've gotten pretty far away from God. Listen, the word of God says that if you return to God, there's no such thing as going too far. He can rescue you, he can redeem you. And when you come returning, what do you think you're going to find? Because far too often I think, man, you don't know what I've done, Pastor Nate. You don't know the mess and the junk and the sin of my life. If I come back to God, he's not gonna want me. You know what the Bible actually says? That when we come to God, he comes running. Just like the prodigal son. There's no such thing as running too far for the grace of God. But here's the point for prayer. Nehemiah knew his Bible. He knew they were exiled and scattered because of their sin. And he knew that if they returned to the Lord, the Lord would restore them. And on this basis, he's saying, God, you said it, so do it. And as believers in Jesus Christ, I hope you know, we have infinitely more reason to do this than Nehemiah did because we have the whole story We live on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We've received all of God's great and precious promises. And so when we pray, we come to God and we say, Lord, you said you would do this, so do it. Lord, act in a way that is consistent with the promises of your word. And we trust that he will do it. Church, let me encourage you in this. When you pray, pray with your Bible open. Pray scripture to God. Say, Lord, you said in your word that you would do this, and I am trusting you to do it. But there's one more thing we learn about prayer, and that's that biblical prayer includes requesting God's help. Requesting God's help. Finally, five or six verses in, Nehemiah gets to the prayer request, and that's in verse 11. He says, "O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is asking for God's help. His request is that God would open up the heart of the king so that he could rebuild Jerusalem. There's a couple of things that really amuse me in this verse. First of all, he calls the king this man. Give me mercy in the sight of this man. By the way, this man is the most powerful human being on the planet at this point of history. But compared to the Lord God of heaven, he's this man. But anyway, you might hear this request and think, okay, big deal, I'm sure the king will do it. Why wouldn't he want Jerusalem to be rebuilt? Not so fast. This is literally a dangerous prayer. And here's why. This is the same king, Artaxerxes, who in the book of Ezra, a generation earlier, decreed that Jerusalem should not be rebuilt because he was biased against it. This is what it says in Ezra 4, verses 19 through 21. I made a decree. This is Artaxerxes, the same king speaking. I made a decree and search has been made and it has been found that this city, that's Jerusalem, from of old has arisen against kings, that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree be made by me. So I want you to get this. Nehemiah is going to the king and he's asking him to change his mind. And this king is biased against Jerusalem. He's saying, this is a rebellious city. I don't want it to be rebuilt. And if you know anything about the law of the Medes and the Persians, you know, read Daniel, read Esther, read these books of the Bible, you'll know that, man, it is a significant thing to ask the king of Persia to change his mind. Nehemiah could have easily lost his life for this request. But to have access to even make such a request Nehemiah tells us the very end of verse 11, I was cupbearer to the king. And now that means more than he was just the king's waiter. It means that he had a position of influence. In the ancient world, the cupbearer often had an official position in court. He was a trusted advisor to the king. So Nehemiah was in a position to be able to make such a request, though it was a dangerous one. So what does this teach us today? Church, I think this shows us that it is okay and even encouraged for us to pray boldly, to pray with confidence, to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It teaches us that there is nothing too big to pray for, that we ought to pray that God's will would be done in and through us, that he invites us to come to him and pray. One commentator put it this way, Nehemiah came to God empty-handed, but not uninvited. That's how we approach the Lord in prayer. So let me leave you with a few final takeaways as we close this morning. First of all, when everything is broken, trust in God's character and in God's promises. Even in your life, if it feels like stuff is messed up and falling apart, Let me encourage you to rest in the character and in the promises of God. I mean, think about this from Nehemiah's vantage point. Jerusalem had been in ruins for 150 years. Yet rather than giving into despair or resting in his comfortable position, he trusted in the character and in the promises of God. And that led him to pray and to act for God's glory. This is a lesson for all of us this morning. Guys, I am painfully aware of the suffering that so many of you are going through this morning. Man, some of you carried burdens in here this morning that I can't even imagine. But regardless of what you're facing today, regardless of the trial or the temptation or the struggle, let me assure you that you can always trust in the character and in the promises of God. But how? How do we know that God can be trusted? How do we know that he is good? How do we know that his promises will always come to pass? The ultimate answer, and you should know where I'm going with this by now, it's Christ, it's the gospel. The gospel shows us that God is good. The gospel shows us that God always keeps his promises. You see, the gospel is the good news that God rescues sinners like us through Jesus Christ. The gospel is that there is a holy God who created us in his image for the purpose of having a relationship with him. But all of us, we have sinned. We have rebelled against God. We have disobeyed his law. And for that reason, what we deserve is God's wrath and his judgment being poured out upon us. But rather than giving us the judgment that we deserved, God loved us so much that he himself entered into this world to save us. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He entered into this world. He lived a perfect life, never once sinning, but he went to the cross where he died and he bore the penalty for our sin in our place on that cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead showing that he had conquered sin. He had conquered death. He had conquered the evil one once and for all. And now... Whoever will turn away from their sin, will trust in Jesus Christ and receive him into their life as their savior will be saved. That is the gospel. That's how you know that God is good because he would stop at nothing in order to save you. That's how you know that God's promises will always come to pass. Because if he already did the hardest thing possible, sending his son to die on a cross for you, what makes you think he's gonna fail on any of his other promises? If God did not spare his own son, but gave, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, you, you have never received Christ into your life. At this time, I wanna invite our prayer team forward. And if you would say, I don't have a relationship with Christ and I'd like to talk with someone about what that means and pray with someone, we have people up at the front who during this last song or after the service or during the block party, whatever, they would love to talk with you and pray with you about how you can receive Christ into your life. have got two more takeaways The next is that prayer comes first. Man, Nehemiah teaches us that prayer comes first before we act, before we do anything, before we pursue the mission that God has given us. Prayer must always come first. This is even more significant when you consider Nehemiah. This was a man of action. This was a doer. This is a guy who got stuff done. So much so, to give you a spoiler, these walls that had been rubble for 150 years get rebuilt in 52 days man, we should have hired him. But Zandler did an incredible, amazing job. Uh, This building is amazing. Um, Anyway, Nehemiah understood that before a plan can be set in motion, we must pray. Prayer always comes before vision. So let me encourage you, always pray and seek God's will. Before you make a decision on your own, before you make a decision as a family, pray and surrender it to the Lord. Do it every morning. Man, whatever time you have to get up for work, get up earlier so you can pray. Some of you might go, well, Pastor Nate, I'm really busy. Okay, then get up even earlier. Because the more you have to do that day, the more prayer you need. You guys know the famous Martin Luther quote, right? Where he said, I have so much to do today that I must spend three hours in prayer. Right, the more that's on your plate, the more you need God, so get up and pray. Prayer must come first. As individuals and as a church family, prayer must come first. Last takeaway, and we'll close with this. A lot of you guys, when you got your bulletin on the way in this morning, got one of these cards that says Reach 3 on it. I wanna explain what this means. Here's the purpose of this card. For those of us here who are followers of Christ, you'd say, I am a Christian. I want you to pray and think of three people in your life that do not know Christ, that are not Christians, that don't have a relationship with Christ. Christ. I'd like you to write the names of those three people on your card. I want you to keep this card as a reminder to pray for them. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for them and to begin looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them and to invite them to church. I wanted to do this for two reasons. One, following the pattern of Nehemiah, that we pray and then we act. That's what we're gonna do with these Reach Three cards. We're going to pray for these people. And then we're gonna look for opportunities to act, trusting the Lord and speaking the gospel to them. But secondly, and I'll close with this, this is why I wanted these cards in your hands at our grand opening. Here's why. This card is the reminder of why we're here. This card is the reminder of why so many of you donated so generously so that we could be sitting here today. This card is the reminder of why so many of you gave up your Saturdays and your weekdays and your whatever else, painting these walls, planting those bushes out there, building sound booths, doing all of these things. Why did we do all of that? Just because we wanted a prettier building? Because we wanted more space? because the members of Coastal Gloucester Country Club needed a nicer facility? Of course not. Why are we here, guys? We're here for Christ. We're here because Jesus Christ is worthy of being worshiped by every corner of this globe and Gloucester County is the part of it that he has assigned to us. We are here because there are people in this county that do not know the gospel and are on their way to hell. And Jesus has given us this good news, this gospel to take to the world and to take to Gloucester County. This card is a reminder of why we're here. We are here as a gospel outpost to proclaim the best news imaginable that God has come to save us. So take this card. Let it be a reminder of why we're here, that we will preach the gospel with all of our hearts for God's glory. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we love you. You are the God of heaven, the God who keeps his covenant, the God who keeps his promises. Lord, I pray that today you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. I pray that you would use us for your glory. I pray that you would give us a heart for your kingdom. Lord, I thank you that that you choose to use sinners like us. I pray, Father, that as we go from this place today and as we spend some time in celebration, that you would be honored and glorified in and through us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.